Hello, I'm Earl Fontenelle. This is the Schwepp, the Secret History of Westness or Terracism podcast. And today we're speaking with Michael Motia, yeah. lecturer in religion at the University of Massachusetts in Boston and a man who knows a thing or two about the great Gregory of Nyssa. Michael, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Yeah, thanks for having me. Big fan of the show. So we were just talking before we went live about how we want to present this stuff. And I thought it would never be out of place in the like craziness of late antique politics because where, where politics and religion become the same thing in a way to, to just do a super quick background check and make sure we know where we are. So Gregory of Nyssa is born about the year 335, 4th century man, but something very important happened 10 years before that, which is the Council of Nicaea under Constantine. Now, Constantine has decided that Christianity is going to be his new imperial cult. He's called together a bunch of bishops and said, right, make theology. And they all proceeded to have a massive brawl and punch each other up for months and months on end. But they finally came up with this thing, which is this formulation of what's now called Trinitarianism. So you have Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. They're somehow the same hypostasis, but they have different personae. They're different faces. And so far, so good. Great. So Constantine dies. He has, at pain, unified the empire, uh, basically dismantling the tetrarchy that was set up with such great difficulty by his predecessor, become the sole emperor. He has three sons, Constantine II, Constans, and Constantius. These guys then fight it out in a massive civil war that goes on and on. We don't need to get into the details, unless maybe we do, if we want to talk about... We'll come back to it in the religious side of things. Then we have a bunch of usurpers uh, with names like Magnentius um, and Wetranio, which leads us up to the great Julian, who's going to reign from 360 to 363. So by the time Julian is on the throne, Gregory is going to be in his 30s. Then we have Jovian and if we fast forward a bit, we come to Theodosius I, who reigns from 379 onwards. Now, Theodosius I is going to be a thoroughly Trinitarian committed Christian who's going to, well, he, he puts out a massive law code for one thing uh, and creates something much more like a genuine Christian empire, uh, historically speaking. So that's kind of what I think are important points to raise. What do you, what should we add to that before we proceed? Yeah, I think just to, to go off of that, it makes Gregory kind of the first generation to be raised in something close to Christian culture. It's not by any means the case that uh, all or even most Romans by this point are Christian. Um, I mean, we're talking, I don't know, somewhere between 20 and 50% of the empire, probably the numbers are hard in antiquity, but you know, it's, it, it's an important religion. It is especially an important religion at the kind of top imperial levels. And because it's so important at the top imperial levels, churches have now gotten a lot more money and there are buildings that are showing up. There are also these creeds and councils that are showing up. So, you know, most listeners, I think, have probably heard of the Nicene Creed or Nicaea, but there are lots and lots of these little councils that are taking place. And so just remembering that, that Gregory is kind of immersed in this and just kind of assumes that it's pretty normal for the uh, emperor to be funding projects and, and things like that. I think that's that's the other kind of just sense of Gregory's life. Maybe I can run into, you know, like his family 
personally, um, they had been Christians for a couple of generations. One of Origin of Alexandria's uh, students, uh, Gregory the Wonder Worker. Another had, Gregory. Uh, no. Another Gregory. Yeah. Gregory's and Constance and Constantine's. Um, you know, there's going to be a bishop named Alexander, who's the Bishop of Alexandria. There's lots of very annoying names in late antiquity, right? But Gregory's family had had been Christian was Christianized kind of through that um, origin style of Christianity. And as listeners from a previous episode might remember, you know, his brother, Basil, was a, a real big shot in kind of both politics and theology, that he was the bishop of Caesarea. He um, was part of big doctrinal fights, but those doctrinal fights were also always kind of political as well. And so you know, his sister Macrina is forming a, a monastery, maybe one of the first monasteries that, that, that we see, uh, the kind of band of angels is what Gregory is going to call them. But you know, Basil is kind of in the, the muck here. And especially when you start seeing people try to split um, different dioceses apart in order to get a non-Nicene or a Nicene bishop to be in charge of a broader region, Gregory of Nyssa and Gregory of Nazianzus both get um, ordained as part of a kind of, you know, like a court packing or a bishop packing measure where you're trying to to get more and more bishops on your side so that they are forming a bigger coalition to keep you in charge. And so Gregory uh, doesn't go to places like Athens to get educated the way uh, Gregory of Nazianzus and Basil will. But uh, he is, you know, part of a broader intellectual world. His father was a rhetorician, a rhetorical teacher. Um, his mom's side of the family seems to have been pretty rich, and so there's a lot of money and there's a lot of education going on. But he's also kind of, you know, used to playing with the big shots um, you know, to the point that when Theodosius calls that other council in 381 trying to you know, shore up his version of what Christianity ought to look like. It's really Gregory of Nyssa who, who opens that conference and is kind of setting the stage for like, this is the kind of theology we're going to, to do here. And we want to kind of push on this, this set of ideas. Right. So unlike Gregory of Nazianzus, he's, he never does become the, um, Bishop of Constantinople or anything fancy like that. He got he gets made Bishop of Nyssa, which is a tiny little uh, provincial town in Cappadocia. At, as you yeah, say, even even during his life, they were like, "What a waste of talent!" Like right. I can't believe you put him there. Yeah, but so the, the um, there's been some gerrymandering, right? There's been some redrawing of the uh, Cappadocian the border. The Cappadocia has been divided into two uh, provinces, basically, by the the emperor and. Basil says, okay, now I can appoint my two guys to these newly created bishoprics and get some support for our version of Trinitarianism. Now, before we go any further, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about the Arian controversy that's going on. Like why? So uh, a super simplified version of history is, well, we had the uh, Nicene Creed. That was official. That was Constantine. Uh, everyone, these guys are followers of Constantine. That he has, you know, his sons and so on coming after him. So no one's surely arguing against Trinitarianism at this stage, right? Almost exactly wrong, right? Which is the, <laughs> the funny part of this is that you have this this big council, this big big creed. All these bishops are showing up, and then it falls apart. I mean, almost as soon as it's done. There had been these big fights about the nature of the Trinity. 
that before Nicaea, um, just kind of, they didn't make it to to the level of controversial enough, right? That, that there's all kinds of things that religious people argue about all the time. And most of the time, it just doesn't matter all that much. But this one seemed to have blown up. Earlier Christians had, had basically grafted Plotinus's hypostases, the one, the noose, the soul, onto father, son, and spirit. And in the fourth century, that bishop named Alexander um, in Alexandria notices that that there's some controversy that people are arguing about, you know, what do we really mean when we're talking about the father and the son? And so he he gets a bunch of people together, including someone named Arius, and says, like, okay, you know, go back to your Bibles. Let's like, let's figure this out. And Arius says, you know, the son is kind of like the noose. It's the, the highest created thing, but it is a created thing. And he's got that, you know, broadly platonic common sense on his side. And he also has Bible verses on his side. Right. Things like, you know, Jesus saying the father is greater than I, right? And Arius is like real, his, his point, his, his kind of, you know, the thing that he's worried about is the simplicity and the alterity of God the father, right? That, that God is alone, that you can't understand God, that you're not going to kind of comprehend a, a, a God like that. And then you have this other side with people like Alexander and maybe most famously Athanasius of Alexandria who say, no, 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 no. It is not the case that the son is you know, one creature among many, even if he is the best one, that, that he's got to be made of the same stuff, that he's homoousius, of the same essence as the father. And you know, Athanasius's point, I think, is that you know, when Christians pray or when they're trying to get in contact with God, that they're not getting in contact with some lesser God when they uh, you know, touch Christ in some way that, you know, if that was the case, that Christ wasn't fully God, then you only get, you know, the multiplicity of, of the intellect without the real God. And so, you know, Athanasius is making two kind of critiques of somebody like Arius. The first one is that, you know, God isn't simple on Arius's view, that if, you know, God, the father is, is really God, and then you have a lesser God, then you've got more than one God, and that's bad. And then the other critique is that if God isn't present, then like, what's the point of Christianity? Like, if you're only going to get some like little lesser God, then like, what's the point? And, and Rowan Williams talks about Arius's idea of the father is like dwelling in this divine hinterland. And that, you know, there's a kind of contemplation maybe that you could do that could, that could, you know, let you imagine your way in, in, into that, but that you never really get in touch with, with the real thing. And so that becomes the fight. And at 325, yes, uh, Athanasius' side wins. But right, as soon as this council takes place, it falls apart. And from 325 to 381, there's you know somewhere between five and a million versions of how to think about this Trinitarian relationship. Some are going to say the father and the son have a, a similar essence. Other are going to say that you know, like maybe we shouldn't talk about the essence, but like they're at least similar. Like maybe we can just agree on that. And I mean, this is going on among bishops, but it's also going on like with emperors, right? right? And so there's a bunch of councils and there's a bunch of fights. And I think one version of this story says like, then Theodosius ends it in 381. But I mean, Arian Christianity continues until like Charlemagne, right? Like, like there are lots of Arian Christians that are going to continue to be around for a really long time. But you're you're totally right that, that Theodosius is a, a turning point, both for you know, kind of doctrinal standards, but also for Gregory's life that, you know, I mean, Basil really makes Gregory, but Theodosius also kind of makes Gregory 
into a major player, that he makes Gregory of Nyssa a standard bearer of orthodoxy, but also like when uh, Theodosius's uh, daughter and then wife dies, Gregory's the person who's preaching at that funeral, right? So he, he kind of becomes a, a a big shot with the the rise of Theodosius. So I think that's the, that's the broad backdrop. And I I think that our our story then really picks up with a, a second generation of Arians. And this is a, another group with the, the characters' names are, are people like Eunomius and Aetius. But they're going to push Arians, um, Arius's claim a little further. That the, the basic Arian claim is that the father and son are similar or they have a similar essence, but there's some kind of similarity, homoousius or homoians. And uh, what this neo-Arian group is going to say is like, well, in what way are they actually similar? And they're going to say like, you know what, all these Nicene Christians, they're obviously wrong, but we, you know, non-Nicene Christians have also been coming at this all wrong also. They say the truth is that, that the father's essence is totally dissimilar from the son's, that the son is the only begotten one, that, that word is in scripture, the gospel of John, but the father is unbegotten. And if you get what agenitos, what unbegotten means, then you actually get the essence of God. And so Eunomius is going to say that like the essence, the truth about the Father is that there's nothing before God the Father. And if you understand that, then you really do understand the truth of God. And I, I think it works a little bit like Anselm's claim much, much later that says, you know, you can pray properly if you understand God is that which nothing greater can be conceived. That for Eunomius, you know, God is that which nothing begets. So and, it's craziness because one of the most interesting things about Gregory, well, Basil, Gregory, and Gregory, is that they all insist as part of the package of theolo theology, and we're going to talk about this in detail, that God is fundamentally unknowable, fundamentally beyond human comprehension. And Arius had, had put God the Father in the hinterland, right? making him kind of inaccessible and unknowable. And then the whole point of Christ is that he's knowable. He's a human being. He's like the human face of God. But then yeah. there's another God above. So that obviously is maybe scary to certain Christians who who see that in more extreme forms as well, in like so-called Gnostic movements, is right, where you have the truly unknown God above everything. And that's not what we want. We don't want that kind of demiurgic, like unknown God with a demiurge God afterwards. But now here we have a Neo-Aryan who's saying, actually, God's pretty simple. It's, it's kind of straightforward. You can kind of get it. So the, the yeah. it's, it's, it's a very interesting the way these ideas of effability and ineffability, comprehensibility and incomprehensibility kind of pop up in different registers throughout these complex debates. Exactly. Yeah. I, I mean, Eunomius really pushes this pretty far. He, he says that this word, agenitos, is the way that God knows God. So it's not the case that like we get some, you know, good, it's not like agenitos is like a, a clever word or a, a nice concept. It is the way God thinks about God's self, right? He says that agenitos is all there is to know. And and so that's like a, means a radical claim of like the kind of simple knowledge of a simple God. But I think it does kind of fit within a broader late ancient context, like Schwept listeners are, are really aware that names do a lot of work in late antiquity, that 
you know, you've got Yamaclis's meaningless names, those those symbola that that you you chant your way through, and it, it's the gods kind of chanting in you that that makes the the cycle work. And Eunomius, in some ways, is the exact opposite of Yamaclis. That Eunomius is saying that there's kind of only one actually meaningful name, but just the the kind of power of names, I think, makes this claim a little bit less nutty than it might seem to, to to somebody saying like wait what like you have some like one name that like actually tells you who exactly god is but i mean this fight gets to be big enough that yeah Eudomius can start his own church and people will go to it and it's big enough that he seems to have like bested basil in a in a debate and it kind of works partly on a theological level but but also because the the counter to it can't be, well, you have this name. Let me tell you about all these other names. Right. What Gregory's going to have to do is, is figure out some way to say, that's just not the way language works. And that can't be the kind of God that we're talking about. And so Gregory in his, his critiques of Eunomius starts to increasingly talk about this idea of divine infinity, that the problem with Eunomius and this idea of, of Agenitos, it isn't just that, that it's the wrong name or that it's a not scriptural name. He, he's going to point to all, all of these things. It's that God is not the kind of thing that you could wrap your arms or mind around. And, you, you know, lots of people talk about infinity, but Gregory is really changing what Christians mean by infinity during this debate that generally the way infinity worked before is that god was you know beyond any sensible thing so god's infinity means you know god is not just you know one more thing among other things but he's going to say that it's it's also beyond what the mind could possibly grasp the previous version of, of divine infinity says that god is like the number of sands on on the shore that you know, right. It's not the kind of thing that you could possibly ever count. But if you were a different kind of counter, like if, if you, like Origen says, like if you have the mind of Christ, then you could plausibly count it, right? And so the idea is that you become a different kind of counter. And Gregory says, like, no, no, no. The problem with thinking about God when it comes to divine infinity isn't that our minds are too small and need to change. It's about the object that you're trying to think about, that God's infinity means that no mind, whether it's a human mind or an angel's mind or any kind of intellect, could ever possibly understand. So he's really changing what Christians mean by infinity during this, this debate to counter Eunomius' ideas around uh, unbegottenness. And the, the minds of many a theologian who come after him will explode because of the things he says about infinity, right? For sure, yeah. Yeah. Uh, so he's the, the linguistic claim is really, really significant here because, among other things, he's going to be he's making the claim that, contrary to the idea that there might be a perfect philosophic language, which is you know shows up now, it shows up already kind of in the Plato's Cratylus, it shows up again and again in the history of Western esotericism. He's making the strong claim that no, that the perfect philosophic language, be it mathematics, be it the lingua adamica, whatever it is, it's still not going to be able to get to God. And yet, he does some really interesting stuff with names, right? Yeah, thank you for laying out some of this stuff about the, his sort of strong take on infinity, which is something I think 
most most critics would argue this is new with Gregory. This is him like he's he's just out there and he's going with it and and coming up with a a whole mind-blowing new concept of that which is boundless. But he also does this amazing thing where he has this sort of he takes basically all the attributes of Christ that are found in St. Paul and creates a kind of something that really reminds me of the way that attributes of of the Quranic attributes of God are used in like Sufism, <laughs> where they're all different names for like the same entity, which transcends all names. And but by sort of contemplating them, you can use that in spiritual work to get closer to the entity you're you're thinking about. Yeah, yeah. He has this treatise called On Perfection, where he he kind of lays out the 34 names that Paul gives to Christ. And he says, you know, some we imitate and others we worship. And and yet, you know, the, the real task of the Christian is kind of to do both with all of these names that you you kind of, you know, stretch out the 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 bounds, you reach out to the edges of your existence with with one name, and then it just kind of floats into the next name. And that that practice, he he says in Against Eunomius, is is a little bit like kind of sending up sparks, not to actually imagine that you are going to like light the way to God, but because those those sparks let you know just how dark it, it really is, that that you need a little bit of light in order to understand the real darkness. Right. So the cataphatic is necessary to make us realize just how apophatic the apophatic really is kind of thing. Yeah. 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 I love it. So we have a totally unknown God. Now, that is a really good strategy, it seems to me, if you really are serious about Trinitarianism, which Gregory and the other Cappadocians are. This, this, I guess it's safe to say, quite Nicene Trinitarian. I mean, th these guys are, it's, it's worth emphasizing, these guys are considered the gold standard of orthodoxy within the Orthodox faith, but also within the Catholic Church. They're less important in the Catholic Church, but they're still given the stamp of approval. Yeah. And and when, when people like recite the Nicene Creed in church, they're actually reciting the creed from 381, like the, the Gregory, Basil, Gregory creed. And, and so it, it gets reworked, I mean, it gets tweaked, like we shouldn't overplay it, but enough that yes, really important in, you know, still contemporary Christian life. Yeah. So that means among other things that you've got this almost impossible to get your head around formulation where the three is the same as one, but with metaphysical nuances talking about how they're the same, but how they're not the same and how they are the same. And um, it makes sense then for Gregory to say, okay, look, God is really beyond us. So that if you were to counter him, if you were to take a, some kind of Neo-Aryan line and say, look, this, what you're saying about God doesn't make sense. God, if God is simple, he's not three, come off it. We've all read Plato. We've all absorbed some Plato, some Pla Platonist thinking. Yes, you know, with Plotinus, we have a noose that is both one and multiple. But of course, ontologically prior to that is a pure simplicity, which transcends the whole concept of number. It's completely incommensurable with multiplicity. That's how reality should work. You Nicene guys are, are making a statement that's just pure nonsense. It's like three and one at the same time. No. Gregory can say, ah, but that's because God just goes beyond human comprehension, right? Yeah, yeah, that God is infinite and there is no time within the infinite. And so to say that 
you know, the father is before the son, like, yes, that is true, but there's not really before and after in something that's infinite. And so, you know, like, are, are you really going to say that, you know, God doesn't have reason or, or a word or a logos before, uh, you know, God creates the, the son or gets the son? Like, well, of course not, you know, that, that's got to be totally wrong. And, you know, I mean, you can, you can imagine how these polemical arguments just kind of bang away. And they really seem to have been kind of everywhere, right? That, that Gregory, I'm sure in a hyperbolic statement, but says, you know, he's like walking around Constantinople in 381, right before the the council is taking place. And he's like, you know, I, I go to like buy a piece of bread and someone is like, well, like, is the father created or did, is the son created? Or, you know, I go to take a bath and someone says like, well, was there a time when the son was not? And it, like, it, it's not that people actually understood these debates. It's that they were you know, they were kind of, you know, identity markers of like, you know, what kind of Christian are you, you know, which, whose side are you on in, in, in this type of thing? And so, you know, these debates were kind of, they were in the air and, you know, I'm sure very few people could actually understand them, but they, they also mattered a lot to people. They mattered to the point of, of fisticuffs to a lot of people. Yeah. 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 Um, an era when, well, maybe we're in a similar era when I, identity markers that people don't fully understand the ramifications of, get them uh, punching each other. Hmm. That's mm. one to chew on. Uh, let's talk about Basil Gregory and Eunomius on rituals. So we've talked a little bit about theology and ideas. What about ritual? What's going on with Christianity and ritual? I think I've heard you say this in a different podcast, but it's sometimes easier to do the speculative stuff and the, the theoretical stuff than it is to actually know what's going on on the ground um, but we have at least some some hints that you know Basil breaks down Christian teaching into two different parts. He says that there is this this krigma, this kind of the, the uh, gospel that you are supposed to announce and, and you know go, go tell it on the mountain kind of stuff. But then there's also a kind of dogma, like the real teaching. And he says that stuff that's reserved for the initiated, so that we don't throw pearls before swine, right? And that idea has been around in Christianity kind of for a long time. And we get little glimpses of what Eunomius might have been saying, you know, and it, it's all coming from either Gregory or or Basil. But Gregory quotes Eunomius in um, against Eunomius 3, having Eunomius say, you know, we ourselves are persuaded by the saints and by the blessed men uh, that the mystery of godliness is not validated by the solemnity of names or the particularities of ceremonies and mystical symbols, sacramental symbols, mysticon symbolum, but by the correctness of doctrine. Right? So, so he, he's saying like, look, what Christianity is really about is about getting this doctrine right. And if we take him seriously about the importance of agenitos, then like, that's the thing to know. And all the other stuff is negotiable. That's at least the way that Gregory wants to present him. Right. So right? he believes that and, he believes that really understanding the, the nature of reality, that's what saves you. Right. Right. So, so yeah. an idea like that we've seen, you know, right at the beginning of the well, we see this in early Christianity. We see this idea, but it's never nailed down at the, the very first lines of the Gospel of Thomas, which, of course, is not canonical from later uh, perspective, but was certainly circulating a lot in the fourth century, says, you know, if you can get the interpretation of this very cryptic text that you're about to read, salvation is yours. So this idea that salvation can come through, let's call it gnosis, let's call it, you know, understanding, uh, 
is around in Christianity. So Eunomius is saying that that's the stuff. Yeah, yeah. And, and Gregory is going to you know, come back at this and say, like, look, the mystery of godliness is validated and salvation is achieved not by correctness of doctrine, but in the ritual of baptism and by the confession of the names, Father, Son, and Spirit. And, and, and he's kind of drawing this, this wedge issue because it's, it seems like there was a, a controversy about how you were going to get baptized. Are you going to get baptized in the name of the Father or in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? But I think Gregory's broader point is like, look, these rituals are kind of where the magic happens. Right. And the theology is meant to frame those rituals. It's meant to kind of give some guidelines to it, maybe even meant to, to theorize what's going on in it. And Eunomius is making the rituals kind of a, a secondary thing. And that can't be what's going on in Christianity. Now, the irony, of course, is that he's doing this like in a theological treatise, right? They're, they're kind of, they're arguing about doctrine, but, you know, Mark de Colignon calls this, this a theology of theology, that it's kind of theorizing, you know, what, what is the purpose of our theology? Like, what are we actually trying to do here? And Eunomius is, is, you know, giving one take of like, you know, I'm putting you in touch with what is most real. And Gregory is saying like, no, 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 like our words, our words are doing something different. Our, our words are not going to capture what is real, but they can you know, give you helpful guidelines for a, a virtuous, holy, good life. So this is sacramentalism, basically. Um, for for as a as a keyword, um, if you're if you're looking into this debate in a, a forum other than the Schwepp, you might find this under filed under sacramentalism versus uh, justification by belief or something like that. So in in the modern the modern. Uh, playing out of this is very much through the Protestant Reformation, where loads of that kind of sacramental thinking, like it's the baptism that saves you, was severely critiqued by various Protestant thinkers saying, like, no, that's magic. That's just Catholic popish magic stuff. It's nonsense. It's hocus pocus. The real stuff is, you know, believe X, Y, Z, and that then you're saved. Like Jesus Christ is your personal savior, for example. Forget about baptism. Or at least baptism is not the key. So this is a debate already happening in the 4th century in a big way. That's good to know. And Gregory takes the baptism is key. So in other words, something magic does happen when you get baptized. You might not want to call it magic. You might want to call it a holy miracle or a saving action of Christ or something like that. But it's, um, it's something effective, real, and it has to do with having water poured on you. Now, to me, this is where I want to bring up Iamblichus, because you make some connections between, or at least like, you know, tentative, interesting connections between Iamblichus and, and Gregory. Uh, this th way of thinking about ritual in a, in a, you know, highly theologically literate, metaphysically informed context, but insisting that ritual is key, is what we find in Iamblichus's De Mysteries, like laid out in a kind of it's sort of tour de force way like this is how rituals work they're important because the gods are behind them doing the doing what's going on behind the scenes i should i should maybe mention here at this juncture that gregory for all his um obvious philosophic chops and the, the man can do metaphysics he's clearly whether from macrina whether from all his um uh friends like basil and Gregory of Nazianzus, who, who did go to Athens and do the 10 years of uh, philosophical education, or from other maybe books he's read, maybe people he's talked to, he knows the language of metaphysics. 
in the late Roman Empire. He can talk in those terms. He can think in those terms. Is there something Yamblichian going on in his thinking? I mean, I think there's at least something to it. I, I think in some ways he's trying to counter some of the, the things that he sees going on in Yamaclus. I think he's um, he is skeptical. I mean, he's obviously skeptical at the polytheism, but right. he's skeptical of the the kind of confidence that Yamaclean theurgy can have, especially in the kind of Julian version of it. And I, I know that you're coming to, to Julian. I don't want to rush ahead, but I mean, I think it's it's like really hard to overestimate what a shock Julian would have been to you know Gregory and uh, Gregory Nazianzus and uh, Basil. That that Gregory Nazianzus writes some really nasty stuff about Julian. Yeah, and and you I mean you just get the sense that like this was a real shock that all of a sudden you know this world that they have kind of started to take for granted starts to crumble. And they're and they're saying like no 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 we are we are not losing this and and they see you know different temples popping up maybe close to them and seeing that there are these really powerful rituals going on and they're saying like yeah we can do that like our you know, our rituals are just as good if not better um, and and you see that kind of competitive edge come out um, w- with Gregory and, and um, I mean you you see it kind of all over that that region of the world that John Chrysostom will, will do a similar kind of, of thing. So you've got, on the one hand, within Christi- within early Christianity, you've got a critique of all religious ritual um, among some thinkers, but they become outliers because at this stage we've got what the, the argument is not a, against ritual per se, but it's against, it's like sacrifice, they, the sort of trademark right. polytheist rituals. They are out, but not ritual as a class. No, some rituals are holy and good. Other rituals are out and satanic, maybe, and diabolical or whatever. And that's now the the kind of battleground, it seems to me. Right? You've still got you got Eunomius and you've got yeah. people who are going to be saying, well, actually, all ritual is kind of dumb. I thought, that, I thought the whole Christian, the whole point of Christian was to do away with ritual full stop. That's why we're not Jews, right? But they're going to end up lose, being the losers of history. And what's going to end up happening is, no, there are sacramental rituals going forward, right? You know, it's not like Eunomius doesn't do rituals, right? Everybody is still doing rituals. You know, the question of how you are theorizing them and and what their role in a broader religious life is, though, I, I think is is pretty different. And I think Gregory and Basil and and Gregory uh, Nazianzus, I mean, all of them are, I mean, just like really practically, rituals are the things that they are doing all the time. People are like walking to the martyrium. That is what most people really know about Christianity, right? Most people are not like sitting down in a Bible study, right? They don't own Bibles. They probably can't read. But they do know a lot about getting up and and going and, and walking to, to this martyr shrine or ce- celebrating, you know, this feast day or something like that. And and so, you know, it's it, Gregory doesn't have a hard time convincing people that the rituals are are the main thing. Right. Got it. So fascinating. Another thing that we haven't talked about on the practical side I want to come back to Gregory the Theologian stroke metaphysician because we haven't talked about yeah. divine darkness yet. But before yes. we talk to divine darkness, let us talk about asceticism. Because we've got the Christian rank and file doing their baptism, doing various other things, weddings presumably, and stuff like that. And that's all under God's... So for the Cappadocians, that's all like God has sort of set this up. This is how Christians do their ritual life. We've got a calendar forming, you know, with saints days and all this kind of stuff easter 
So that's all good. But what about the more hardcore people like Macrina, the younger, uh, Gregory's sister, like Gregory himself, like his friends who are doing this kind of experimental thing that's developing into what we know as monasticism, but sometimes, especially in um, the Syriac realm and in Egypt, taking forms of like kind of uh, extreme performance art. Uh. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And so, I mean, Gregory is coming along like if Anthony, I think, is born around uh, 284 or something like that, or like around around the time of Diocletian, um, and and lives for for a long time. But but um, Anthony you know, starts off this this broader ascetic movement where he is moving out into the desert and living a, a life of, of fasting and and prayer, and that that really kind of takes off post Constantine. Um, the way I. Uh, um, Athanasius talks about it is that you have this kind of new group of martyrs that, you know, like, what, what do you do when you, you, you're trying to be like the hardcore people, but now the empire is on your side. Well, um, you know, you're, you're looking for a, a different kind of, of intensity. And so you get this big push of people going out into the desert. I mean, we have thousands of people out there, but over in the Cappadocian area, we see something a little bit different. It seems like so Basil writes a, a rule, a, a kind of handbook, a set of guidelines for how to live a, a monastic life. And his seems to kind of put monastics closer to the broader public that you could kind of you know live in a city or in a town um, uh, with other non-monastic people. The, the kind of best example of this comes, I think, from Macrina. And Macrina, she is the, the oldest of the siblings. And after she, so she's engaged, her fiance dies and she takes care of her mom and eventually convinces her mom, like, you know what, we should sell our properties. We should get rid of our slaves and we should live a, a life of asceticism. And they, it seems like go, go to a, one of the homes that they owned and they gather a, a small community around them and they uh, live what Gregory calls the life of the angels, where they're reciting the Psalms, they are you know reading scripture, they're fasting and praying and trying to live out a, a virtuous life. And so we don't see you know, the evidence for the kind of is- extreme asceticism that you see, you know, with Simeon the Stylite, like uh, up on a up on a pillar for for years on end, or yeah. the you know the stories of the of the desert fathers and mothers in in, in Egypt. But we do get a, a kind of community that has been somewhat closed off that, you know, Gregory gets kind of special access to because when he goes there, his sister is dying. And so he he gets a kind of, you know, special report and sits with her in, in her dying days. And, and as he tells it, gives a um, very, you know, Fado-like story about her life, but about also the the soul and the resurrection. Yeah. And so she's kind of, she's doing like philosophy we call philosophy in the desert but philosophy in a a monastery right um or so so i think the broader point is that this is a this is a movement that's really taken off right that that at a time in which an empire is increasingly getting christian you have people who are looking more and more for the more intense 
version of piety and you see different kinds of communities popping up and, and experimenting with like, okay, you know, what would a holy life look like now? And some people are going to Egypt, some people are going to, to Syria, and you see more and less extreme versions of it. How can you be punk rock when punk rock becomes mainstream? Exactly. Yeah. Now, you mentioned slavery, and I think before we get onto metaphysics, uh, it, it's worth mentioning that Gregory of Nyssa is said in the literature to be the first person ever on record to come out and say, slavery is just wrong. That's pretty amazing. In the days of the abolitionist movement within Christianity in the 18th and 19th centuries, when, when Christians start to argue from Christianity that we shouldn't have slaves, right? They're saying because of Christian principles. And you say, okay, well, that's great, but it's also to be contextualized in the 18th and 19th century. But here we have in the 4th century already Gregory of Nyssa arguing from Christian principles that we shouldn't have slaves. And he's coming from a landed gentry uh, family that has massive amounts of slaves. The only way you can have villas and, and all these kind of uh, estates that function is by having massive slaves. What does he say about this and, and what is his, uh, his take on it? We shouldn't overstate the case, right? That he is not calling for uh, an end of slavery. He's saying, if you want to live a perfect life, you can't have slaves. So like Macrina is going to give up her slaves, but you know, he, he is not, you know, a modern day Frederick Douglass, right? We, we, we don't want right. to confuse him with any kind of like, there's not a systemic critique um, in the way that he, he almost gets there or it's, at least is close there when it comes to money lending, where um, he and, and, and Basil both are, are, are saying, you know, like, Look, all, all these moneylenders are, are, are scamming the poor, and it's got to stop um, if if we want to. There was a famine, and the the rich were taking all the grain. And but Gregory's argument in the homilies on the Book of Ecclesiastes against slavery is that you know God is the only person who owns anyone or anything, and that you can't own the image of God. And so, if you want to to be perfect, if you want to live a, a perfect life you can't have these slaves. Like it's, it is a, a kind of idolatry. It is not a theme that he returns to over and over again, but it is, you know, I mean, it's like an important ethical point and kind of historical marker that, that Christians have and continue to, especially, you know, recently they come back to, and, you know, like I, for one, am not going to, to be the person to tell them not to, <laughs> right. um, like the lie is that like, Look, like fourth century Christians across the board were against slavery. Look at Gregory of Nyssa. Like yeah. that is not what's going on. No. But he did come out and say it. And, well, and here's the, the fact thing. that he he only said it once, like maybe he meant that he like really got shot down. Yeah. But well, uh, yeah, yeah. Here's the thing. Like in the 19th century, you can argue about getting rid of slavery 100% because you have this new thing called capitalism that makes it possible to maintain civilization to the like high specs that you want to maintain it at without slaves because you have like cotton gins and you have a nascent like petroleum burning industry and stuff like this machines that can do stuff you don't have that in the fourth century so for yeah. him to say we're going to have stop having slaves would be a kind of uh you can say goodbye to roman civilization then with all yeah. its infrastructure and everything you, you're just going to have uh i mean in the, in the Western Empire, people do say goodbye to Roman civilization quite soon afterwards um, with the results that we see in the historical record. Things get pretty bleak, on the at least on the material side of things. So you can't argue for abolishing slavery, maybe, 
in that context unless you want to abolish what is understood to be civilization. Yeah. And, and I mean, you know, part of the magic of, of Macrina's community is that it seems like they were trying to set up a different kind of society, right? A, like a, a small little world without slaves. And maybe that's part of what makes them that, that band of angels. Um, yeah, I like yeah, it. You, you, the, the problem in the fourth century or something that if we want to contextualize bigger, the historical instance that comes to my mind is uh, what happened in Lindisfarne here in what's now the UK, where you had this amazing monastic community on this island doing their thing, creating beautiful artwork, uh, doing a really interesting form of Christianity. And it all went well until uh, the Norsemen showed up. And the Norsemen were like, these guys have loads of stuff. And they don't even fight back when you kill them. And they just literally killed everyone. They weren't they weren't like gonna like, oh, we respect your utopian stance. They were like, oh, you mean we can just kill you all and take all your shit and uh, okay, let's do it. And they did it. So uh, the Macrinas of the world in their cool utopian alternative communities are within the Roman Empire, which is being defended and sure. the peace is being maintained by this like gigantic military machine that's keeping the the goths out and the huns out and everyone from uh overrunning sure. the place yeah. so interest there's an interesting social side to this but but anyway thank you very much for kind of elucidating what's going on there because it because it is a bit of a milestone to have a christian saying uh slavery no we can't have slaves even if it isn't the um you know the kind of abolitionist stance that it's been made out to be the question of usury is another interesting one because the idea that money lending is non-Christian is kind of established in this time, right? But uh, mm-hmm. it's going to take the Protestant Reformation to reverse that. <laughs> when when Christians are going to go, we're literalists about the Bible, but it's okay to let it. Char- we're going to call it charging interest, but it's okay. Now, let's talk about metaphysics and, and theology a little bit. The, the thing that maybe is most interesting from this perspective to our listenership, it's most interesting to me, let me just say that, is this idea of divine darkness, the idea of the the human being reaching out toward God, and God is, is not there in a certain way, but the the reaching never stops anyway. And it's maybe yeah. it's about the reaching. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I I mean I think maybe the the most famous or most interesting thing about Gregory is this kind of set of correlations between divine darkness and, and the endless stretching that if God is infinite and humans in some way mimic or are images of God, then they, they best imitate or most imitate God, not by, you know, becoming boundless themselves, but through this kind of endless stretching towards God. And I, I think we see three three ideas about divine infinity, divine darkness, and endless stretching, all coming together in two later treatises that, that Gregory writes. One is called The Life of Moses, which is what it says. And the other one is a set of homilies on the Song of Songs. And the Song of Songs is kind of a you know weird erotic poem that somehow made its way into the Bible despite never having the word God in it, and that it becomes the, the most commented book of, of the Bible uh, by the Middle Ages. But it's thought to be um, by, by Solomon, it's worth mentioning, because yes, we love our yes. Solomonic, Solomonic tradition here at the Schweppe. That's right. Yeah. Um, so there, there's a kind of progression from that you go from the Proverbs to Ecclesiastes, and then if you can make it, you make it all the way to the Song of Songs. But 
Gregory's probably writing these two in the 390s, kind of after he's made it big. And what we really see, especially with Moses, is that he's making Moses's ascent of Mount Sinai a kind of map for the soul's journey to God, which is something I'm sure you'll see again with Evagris and with Pseudodionysius, the Areopagites, uh, among many others. Um, but he's really kind of you know setting the stage here. And the the book has two and a half parts to it. There's an intro and then two parts. Um, the the intro talks about virtue. And it seems like he gets this question about, you know, how do I become perfect in virtue? And he he sets it up saying, perfection isn't the kind of thing that Christians do, not in the sense of like, you know, you you reach out and you grab perfection, because perfection really means participating in something that's infinite. And so there can't be any any break on it. There can't be any end to it, because it's something you have to always keep doing. And he says, if you want a, a picture of that, if you want to know, you know, like that, that's abstract, let me tell you how to actually live this out. Uh, let me tell you about Moses, because I think Moses is, is our, real, our, our real example here. And so he first tells the kind of history of Moses' life and then gives a contemplative reading of that life. So he kind of summarizes what's going on in the book of Exodus, and then he, he you know, elaborates on it a little bit. And I think to get at this set of issues around divine infinity, divine darkness, and this endless stretching, it's helpful to see what he's he's setting up. So in Exodus, there's these kind of weird statements that Moses at once sees God face to face, and at the same time that both Exodus and other parts of the Bible will say that, that no one has ever seen God or that you can't see God and live. And he's saying like, well, what's going on here? Like, how does Moses see God face to face and not see God in some important way? And that's where we get this idea of the luminous darkness and where the radiant darkness or the divine darkness. And Gregory, you know, he spent some time outlining, you know, Moses' life, you know, little baby sent down the river in a basket, those kinds of things. But then after they the Israelites pass through the Red Sea and they're they're wandering through the the desert, he he stops on this verse. It says, Moses entered the darkness where God was. It, it's Exodus 20, 21 for those keeping score at home. But he says that this is like this is where the real encounter with God is going to happen. And it's something that Previous commenters have have noted. So, you know, it shows up in Philo, it shows up in Clement, it shows up in Origen. You know, everybody's reading the, the same text, more or less. But they all kind of move past it because this idea that the darkness would be a good thing just seems kind of metaphorically off, right? I mean, you, you know the Platonists better than I do, but I. I haven't seen Plotinus dwell on the darkness as a good thing. No. Like the, the idea with the darkness is you're supposed to get rid of it, right? It's all about light. It's all about the sun simile from the Republic. It's all about the right. illumination and light and stuff like that. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's and, the symbolic and, register. Yeah. And so Origen is, is going to say that, yeah, Moses entered into this darkness, but now Christ has come to take away the darkness Philo will say that that you know yes Moses enters the darkness and that's a good thing but Philo's emphasis also is really uh, about kind of uh, the that lack of knowing the kind of weak sense of of infinity that we were talking about not the incomparability of God that Moses's goal isn't really contact with an incomparable God it's a way to get to an intermediary 
logos that would that would allow right. you to, to contemplate well. And similarly with Clement, right? Clement, a, a reader of Philo, will say, you know, Moses' ascent into into darkness is something that allows for a power of God to move him from darkness into light, right? That's what Christ is doing, is moving you from darkness into light. But Gregory is is like not satisfied with that. And and I think we can we can kind of track this back to all that stuff about Eunomius and the importance of unknowing or not knowing God in some you know, deep and ultimate way. And he's aware of of the importance of light, right? He, he it's not like he's he, he doesn't know what's going on here. And he says like Look, what you got to understand, there's two different kinds of darkness, right? Of course, there's a darkness of ignorance. There's a darkness of not knowing. There's a darkness of sin. And Christ comes to, to bring the light and, and, and whatnot. But, but then he says, but there's another kind of darkness on the other side of truth. And that's where God really is. And so he'll say that, that what Moses does is he, he moves you know, from darkness to light and then from the light, he's following God in the clouds, and then he goes up this mountain and he slips in to this place where God is, which is in the darkness. And he says, you know, for leaving behind everything that is observed, not only what sense comprehends, but also what intellect thinks it sees. This intellect keeps penetrating deeper until, by the intelligence's yearning for understanding, it immerses itself in the invisible and incomprehensible, and there it sees God. This is the true knowledge of what is sought. This is the seeing that consists in not seeing, because that which is sought transcends all knowledge, being separated on all sides by incomparability, by a kind of darkness. And so this is where John says that uh, uh, you know, the one who penetrates into darkness is also the one who has never seen God, right? So he's, he's saying that, that, yes, Moses enters into this darkness, but what does he see? Well, he's initiated into this inner sanctuary, which is surrounded by darkness on all sides. And and he'll do a similar kind of thing, talking about the bride in, in the Song of Songs, that just like with Moses, it goes from light to cloud and to darkness. So too does she enter into this innermost shrine of knowledge, and she's entirely seized by a divine darkness. And in this darkness, since everything appears and is comprehended, has been left outside, only the invisible and incomprehensible remains for the soul's contemplation. The bride, like Moses, is entering into this divine darkness and she's embraced by a divine night. And yet somehow, he says, there's a sense of presence that shows up even in that darkness. Cue yeah. the whole history of Christian mysticism. Or am I wrong? Yeah. No, I, I, I don't think you're wrong. I mean, you know, there were there were big fights... 50, 60 years ago about whether you should start the history of Christian mysticism with Gregory of Nyssa or with Origen. And I have no dog in that fight. But I think that, you know, like this imagery of darkness really is going to take off and it's going to be be everywhere. Um, but that, that kind of connection between darkness and sense of presence becomes really important for Christian mysticism, for sure. Michael Motia, thank you so much for talking to us about Gregory of Nyssa. Until next time, we have the pleasure of speaking. Please be like the radiant darkness and stay esoteric. Well, thanks. <laughs>